New Models Podcast, Episode 45. Shady, my ladies, with Holly and Dovidi. today by Holly and David Davidi, two online natives that bridge Wait, a number. Wait, is Davidi the, is Davide the real pronoun- pronunciation no, of the... It's David Y, no? Like as in his you know, name. it's open for interpretation. I pronounce it Davidi yeah, as well totally in my fine. head anyways. Yeah. David Davidi cool water. <laughs> or it's like the perfume. Yeah, cool, yeah. cool water. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, Holly and David Hi, everyone. are online natives that bridge a number of digital spaces that exist in some opposition to the status quo. You're really active in a lot of different communities. And this past week, a part of the internet-driven social space that feels like maybe the most tuned in to where digital culture is headed had a major drama. Basically, a couple weeks ago, we had Dean Kissick and Shuman Basar on the podcast, and we were talking about the Venice Biennale, and Dean made a joke, and I reinforced it, saying, yeah, like they might as well have had miladies in the American Pavilion. And I sort of said it offhandedly. I think you explicitly suggested for <laughs> miladies to be the only art in the American Pavilion. <laughs> it was just, an, it was like a polemical statement to show that there are multiple realities that of like what people are considering art to be. And you said it in jest though, I as a provocation. Okay, sure. And then afterwards there was like a bit of blowback and I felt kind of bad. But then this week I started seeing on Twitter like Milady's, oh, it's a groomer suicide cult. And like- uh, essentially the Milady NFT project got canceled, which is not quite a usual thing for the blockchain world, but there was definitely a huge blow up around this project and the people involved and questioning anyone who would continue to have a milady as their profile picture. But through the cancellation, um, and I'm sorry, my voice, allergies like like, killed my voice, (laughs) but through this cancellation, because so many people started talking about it, it revealed the like IRL social contours of the Milady project and who pays attention, like who is actually in that scene, IRL, where they're located, what they do. And so through this cancellation, you actually did get to see the IRL scene behind this project. Okay, we probably should give our listeners a bit of an orientation here in case some of you have a life. This episode is about some internet drama, crypto drama to be specific, and one that's lit up the intersection between art and Web3 on Twitter. Basically, it's been all up in our algos, a hot topic in one of the circles in the kaleidoscopic Venn diagram of the new model's social graph. Here's everything you need to know to even remotely navigate what follows, starting from the basics. NFTs. NFTs are online images you can buy and own. In January, NFTs became compatible with Twitter, allowing you to use an NFT that you own as your PFP or profile picture. With Twitter giving your PFP a special hexagonal frame that shows everyone else you truly own the NFT you are displaying as your profile picture. This Twitter compatibility feature made a certain kind of NFT project very popular, the 10,000 PFP NFT collection. Essentially, some creative collective would make 10,000 individually unique generative variations of a single character template and sell the 10,000 images on an NFT market for people to use as one-of-a-kind profile pictures. The first of these PFP projects was called CryptoPunks, old-school pixel art-style portraits of punks with various accessories, mohawks, cigarettes, eye patches, etc., in 10,000 unique variations. The most famous and most expensive of these projects, however, is called Bored Ape Yacht Club, created by the shadowy organization Yuga Labs. Bored Ape Yacht Club is 10,000 individually unique but unexceptional images of cartoon apes 
targeting the fuckboy streetwear crowd, and the cheapest of which is currently priced at around 86 Ethereum or 170,000 US dollars for a JPEG of a cartoon ape that you can prove you own. But the 10,000 PFP series we are talking about today is called Milady Maker, or Miladies for short. 10,000 individually unique, quote-unquote neo-chibi-style anime girls with Harajuku fashion accessories. Miladies were created by a Zoomer net art collective called Remelia Corp, who gained a reputation for their fried aesthetics and trollish intellectualism. We know people who know Remelia, and people with Milady PFPs show up in our Discord servers and Twitter feeds all the time. Partly because Remelia Corp has some clout in the younger art crowd, partly because there's 10,000 of them, and partly because Miladies cost one one hundredth of the price of a bored ape. Now the drama. In 2019, there was this anonymous Twitter account called Mia Blackhearted Cyber Angel Baby. Mia led this hashtag group called Kali Ak or Kali Accelerationism, which took Western traditionalism, Eastern esotericism, far-right politics, scientific racism, and counterintuitively, a touch of disability and gender politics, and synthesized it into a true mindfuck of an aestheticized, autistic, reactionary, internet hate machine on steroids. Or maybe estrogen. Obviously, extremely cancelable shit, but extremely novel cancelable shit that you couldn't help but notice. Mia disappeared once the account hit 10,000 followers, seemingly becoming another fleeting fever dream in the arcane lore of the internet. But what happened next shocked the world. What is the relationship between Remelia Corp's CEO Charlotte Fang and Mia, the once infamous leader of Kali Accelerationism? Why are Balenciaga models partying with devotees of Urbit, an obscure online network running on incomprehensible proprietary code? Are miladies actually an adorably deceptive front for a Nazi groomer cult? Or just misunderstood after a chance encounter with the Lovecraftian digital entity known as Angelicism left them with an unfortunate fashion choice? How much is Ryder Rips, the notorious postnet prankster who's thirsty for fame and hungry for Soylent, involved in orchestrating what could be the world's first tandem 10,000 PFP cancellation? And finally, does gender even exist online? With some help from omniscient cyber sleuth Holly and darknet glitterati Davidi, New Models promises to get to the bottom of a drama that's defining an era and revealing a key rift between two camps of digital denizens that have very different ideas of the future of identity online. Okay, now back to the podcast. First of all, what is Romelia? The smallest unit I could reduce it to would just be essentially a friend group. They have this group chat called Hot Pot and I guess at some point, this group of friends decided that they were going to take it to Web3 and they formed Romilia. They had one show last summer that was like a hybrid like IRL and online show, which was really cool. It was like out at a gallery in New Zealand, but then they were also like selling NFTs of people's like digital work. And then there was this like really cool like live chat, like live typing. And then for their second project, they saw how popular like the PFP NFTs are, like Bored Ape. Okay, now describe the Miladies. So the like NFTs that they released, like this artist, Milady Sonora, their like style is like very cute. Um, looks like a tiny little like elf girl. They call it like Neo Chibi. And it's very inspired by Harajuku, like street style, I guess, from like the early 2000s-ish. And yeah, it really took off. So starting an FT project is kind of like trying to become a rapper or something like thousands and thousands of people try and very few make it. But Milady's kind of made it, but it was like a long journey and it wasn't always positive attention. Can you take us through these waves? There's been a few periods of like major activity around Milady. Like I remember people in like friends with benefits started to get really accessed out by it. Yeah, and that was after a lot of those people had Miladies, right? Yeah, people were really excited about it. Trevor, who led FWB, minted some. Everybody was minting them. 
I minted a bunch. And then like, I think hours later, they dropped <laughs> that bitch collection mm-hmm. and basically blew up their own spot with the Treblinka. And then- Do you want to just very quickly, Dan, <laughs> unpack what that is? Angelicism wrote a piece about the post-net artists making NFTs. He described the, the AIDS 3D OMG obelisk NFT as a water cooler at Treblinka. And then use that same metaphor again. Treblinka was a concentration camp, by the way, in World the, War II. One of the worst death camp, I think. Actually, I think worse than Auschwitz, but less known. And I've encountered lots of people who don't know what Treblinka is. So it definitely is like enough of a code word that, well, Jews understand it and people who know about history, but a lot of people don't know what it is. And I think that's kind of key to its use. It's not Auschwitz, you know? Anyway. Angelicism was really, at that time, very anti, like, Web3 and stuff, and had sort of a contentious relationship with Charlotte Fang, who was, like, the former CEO of Vermilion. And to sort of riff off of that, they made this smaller Milady collection where they, like, randomly, like, took words from Angelicism's essay and, like, turned it into shirts that said, like, B-I-T-C-H, and then each letter was randomly, like, assigned to be a word from the essay. So then, like, some of the shirts wound up, the T was... Treblinka, so then people found out about that and raised like an alarm. And that was the first wave cancellation. Yeah. Dexter, who is one of the co-founders of FWB, he kind of discovered the whole history and wrote of the initial takedown. It was enough to at least cancel it within FWB. And if that had not happened, it probably would have minted out then and had a very different trajectory mm-hmm. from the very beginning because it did have mainstream within Web3 support. It's just they shouldn't have used the word Treblinka in those <laughs> shirts, basically. I think they very quickly realized that that was a huge error on their part. Up until that point, I don't think a lot of people had any association with certain past projects that some of them had. I do think they were trying to distance themselves from all that stuff because immediately afterward, Romelia sort of like issued this statement being like, we don't condone hate, we don't condone racism. Like this is meant to be like a positive, like inclusive space. It When I saw that, I thought that was like, such a funny like shift for who I knew was writing it and like what their like past personas had been like. Just to clarify, Romelia Corp, it is a multi-racial, multi-gender group, right? Definitely. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I mean, David has met plenty of them in person too. And they're not like white supremacists in like organized actual like political sense. They're just all from like 4chan. Yeah. They're edgy, basically. It, it is what it is. I don't know. But yeah, like it was surprising how little effect that had because like three or four years ago, a like 300 follower account could like tweet a cancel thread and everyone would see it. Mm -hmm. So it's like maybe it goes to show that that stuff doesn't have quite as much like power anymore. Not in a bull market. (laughs) I think that's also part of it. When resources are not scarce, people are not like fighting over them in the same way. But what did happen, the collection didn't mint out until I think March of this year. There was a huge just lull where they were essentially worthless. People were burning them, the ones of Triplinka anyway. People were giving them away. I gave one away back then because they were worthless. And their resurrection is like pretty unusual within NFT world because usually it has to be an immediate mint out within hours or less. The fact that it's had this long kind of longevity in multiple lives is really unique, I think. So how do Miladies like grow to the point where they're at now, which is like a really unique kind of peerless phenomenon in the crypto space. I do sort of think it was like fairly organic, especially on Twitter. People that had like Milady PFPs would like post really unhinged stuff. And there was a strong like posting persona associated with the Miladies and that had a reputation. So people would be like, oh, if you see someone with this PFP, you know, you're about to hear the most like insane thing you've ever heard in your life. Yeah. Schizo posting. And then suddenly like the last like 6,000 like got minted in like one day. And then the price just like kept going up and up up until like a few weeks ago. It was just still going up. What was like the peak, like average price? I think it was like two. Two ETH. Yeah. Two ETH was the average floor. But yeah. And there was also, I think, things like NFTX, which is like a NFT derivatives platform. It kind of adds a whole bunch of liquidity into the system, which means there's all these bots trading. And they're just like very few art world uh, Avant, I guess, is the, what they call them. Avant NFT things get that level of financial traction. So, and I will say, like for all of this cancellation that happened online, they didn't get deplatformed off of OpenSea. So, I do think that's kind of important. They're still intact. The market. 
So, but just to clarify, it's still a bit of a mystery why suddenly it became a super hot NFT and sold out. Yeah, it is like a bit of a question. I know a lot of people have asked, like how, like how did that occur? As I mentioned in the beginning orientation, though, the the Milady's cancellation was part of the world's first tandem ten thousand PFP cancellation. Can you tell us uh, about the other cancellation? Rider Rips had decided to cancel Board Apes, Yuga Labs. It was a, he went full. I mean, it was Luke Turner mode. Part Luke Turner. He went full Luke Turner. He went full Luke Turner. Yeah, it it was the same type of apophenia of a deep critical text analysis and also like amplifying whatever random other suspicions people had about Yuga Labs. Some of it I think has some merit. Like, I don't think it's a coincidence that they're called Yuga Labs. I mean, let's get real. Furthermore, he argued that the name Yuga was a reference to the Kali Yuga, a Hindu concept that has been connected with far-right nationalist sites like the Daily Stormer in the past. In July 2019, a telegram group called the Kali Yuga Surfing Club was founded, sharing eco-fascist, Nazi, and white supremacist content. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I think some of it is it does have merit, but the way that the thread was constructed was fully just Luke Turner. From the same angle, Jewish man offended about symbolism... Ah, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah. So there was that. He was posting about the apes, and then he started posting about the miladies too, which inherently like puts them on a similar level, I guess. That was also like a moment where I was like, oh, so like this is like in the same like arena, I guess, as like Lord Apes, which is a very expensive NFT that like rappers have. So yeah, he was trying to do the same thing on Milady, which it's all kind of like turns very performative. I also feel like this is a very bear market symptom that he's, I mean, Milady's on a cultural impact for like our little niche world, huge, but the volume of Lord Apes is just infinitely higher. Celebrities have them. And they're getting private venture capital valuing them at billions, you know, Yugalabs. Okay, finally, Charlotte Fang, Mia, Cali Accelerationism, Ramelia Corp, Miladies. How does it all fit together? I guess last week, Charlotte Fang, the ex CEO of Ramelia, on Twitter announced that they had been Mia, like full disclosure. I was Mia and I will be stepping down because we don't want to have like this baggage with the Milady like community. And so that's kind of where we are now, I guess. Yeah, just to make it even more incomprehensible, we have to explain Mia now. And Kaliak, I think. <laughs> and also Charlotte Fang said that they're a Mia, but Charlotte Fang is still, of course, a pseudonym. So it's like killing one, like sacrificing one avatar, but with still the possibility of coming back as any number of others. Yeah. It's like, they're, they're docs too, actually, oh, I think. Okay. At least the first name and they got face docs, but barely. And I, I do think what you're saying is true though, that basically it was one person that got canceled and another one can form. And that person, the guy, he's got many, many alts. So, you know, he didn't like disappear. He's just retiring Charlotte, I guess. Right. Which is like what happened with Mia. And like, I guess like we should just explain. Yeah, so. Um, (laughs) um, Sure. So it has a lot of roots in image board culture and like trolling. So like a lot of the people that went on to start like posting in this loose association of like Kaliak were people that had been on 4chan and then like around 2016 it got mainstream people started coming from reddit they hated that there was sort of what they called like a chan diaspora one of the stated purposes of Kaliak originally was a beacon for like former chan posters to like find each other and like reunite with these like shared values which were they like to like flame people they like to like be provocative and offensive but this was also 2017 on twitter which was the era when we had this thing called frog twitter bronze age pervert was sort of the biggest name around this time kind of spawned like this like subculture of like esoteric right wing trad you know so there was this account called 
Mia, BPD God. I got a lot of attention because it would like get in a lot of flame wars with other Twitter users in the sphere, like Logo, Daedalus, and like CompBot. And the vibe of Mia was very much Nick Land, like accelerationist, cyberpunk, like serial experiments lane, like as has this like strong like orientalist bent to it. They would always be like, oh, I'm a half Japanese trans girl. A lot of the like Mia persona revolved around what I sort of think of as like heterodox trans theory so it would like have these really weird like unorthodox like takes on like trans stuff like the one that's like most iconic to me is trans rights is trap erasure and it's just sort of this like complete reverse of how people view these things you know it is pretty anathema on like the online right to even like be transgender at all like they are like oh that's like degenerate so like that was another reason that Mia was so provocative to them and so Mia wasn't the only major account. You had the other person, Sonny, and they would post a lot about genetics, race, IQ, kind of like the NRX, like Dark Enlightenment, very like eugenics oriented. But it, there was always all these contradictions. You had the Mia persona, which was much more like future oriented and cyber. But then you had this other side of it from Sonny, who is more of a like true, like reactionary traditionalist side. So there's always this weird contradiction. Obviously, like, it was like a posting persona. So there's no, like, true... It's not a political position. Yeah. It's not a real... Yeah, it's just it's not a real ideology. Exactly. And Mia, I have to clarify, was like a collaborative project. Like, you have, like, these people who are, like, all in their group chat and they brainstorm together, like, what to tweet and then, like, the account tweets. So, like, the voice kind of changes. Yeah. And Charlie, like, did a lot of, like, copy-paste, like, tweet-stealing on purpose. I would say, essentially, though, the aesthetic pack of Mia, the sort of Japanophile anime transgender right-wing troll, it's not uncommon on 4chan, especially pre politically incorrect mm -hmm. dominance. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, there's a breakcore artist, Sewer Slut, who, oh, like, yeah. is very much the, the same aesthetic, aesthetic really, pack yeah. as Mia. And what Mia really felt like that was following the account back then, too, is it felt like this break into Twitter of a older like an ancient archetypical entity of deep, dark internet. I was pretty involved in, in 4chan around like 2008. And at that time, it was a lot of like misanthropy and straight up sadistic trolling. But there was a side of it that I really sympathized with was that it had this kind of like militaristic enforcement of digital dualism. Like basically the belief was that the internet was meant to be free in all senses of the word, like free from financialization, semiotically free, and most importantly, free in terms of identity. Like the entire point of it was inhabiting an invented self or selves. And to have the real you be online was like a grave transgression that would invite like swarm trolling because mm -hmm. this was before like being a YouTuber was really even a well, it certainly big, profitable big at that thing. Point. Yeah. This is before Facebook's real name policy, right? And also like everything else on the internet, cancel culture was essentially developed on 4chan, Project Chanology, which is organized swarm canceling of Scientology. Huh. That was really the first time I remember seeing a group of people getting together on the internet and doing a campaign that the press all picks up. It was always pure right. chaos on right. 4chan at that time. They would egg on school shooters and call the cops on school shooters. Like, right. But um, Mia really did have this early 4chan energy of totally invented identity, chaos, but with the racist and reactionary politics that Trump, fandom, Pepe, it kind of had that politics incorporated with this earlier sort of like total freedom online. But in a certain way, it's like a dark inverse of the like moral entrepreneurship of cancel culture of like 2017, 2018. Or two, I mean, Mia didn't start until 2019, 2019 or 20, right? right. So I think 2019 was when Mia like made on to Twitter. And yeah, a lot of people started to copy their like style. A big thing that Mia and Sunny started was like, they would fill their bios with identity signifiers that would be like gender, pronouns, like race, and it would say like, I have autism, like I have depression, like disability to it. Yeah. Yeah. So there was kind of satirizing like both sides. And I think 
Mia maintained that they were basically like a trans woman of color too. So it was sort of this like using that dynamic that already existed and just kind of like taking advantage of it in a way. I don't know. Like when Charlie is speaking about this, especially on the Contain pod, there's this attitude of like, well, the game was like maximize attention to 10,000 followers and then pull the plug. And like, oh, it was a conscious decision to use all the exploits available just to sort of prove a point. This is actually how the internet operates. If you build a social protocol and it's optimized for maximum traction and you follow it out really brutally, this is the account that you will get. It's not I who was posting. It's simply an operation that I put into place. Mia is an operation that one puts into place in order to maximize this function of the internet. How does that track with your understanding of the project? I think that that's true. You know, I don't want to like necessarily parrot the way that they speak about it as fact, because I do feel like that they're doing a little PR on that. But yeah, the way they present it is very like detached. I do feel like people, especially Charlotte, that were like behind Mia, did put a lot more of their personal like desires and like psychology into it in terms of getting their like ego gratified and stuff. Yeah. But whether it was originally intended to max out those protocols it definitely did and they were at the very least taking these like extremely like sticky sort of like signifiers from both like the right and left you know there was at some level like a conscious manipulation of that stuff right it reminds me of that ai that 4chan turned right wing was it called tail it was like some microsoft ai right 4chan swarmed it and turned it into like a evil racist yeah yeah so every time you'd say something to it it's responsible Right. to be like completely unconscionable. But it, it is interesting in the way that like, I mean, I'm not vouching for it. I don't want this to be misconstrued, but like it is interesting the way it showed like the limit case of this technology, the social limit case. So, I mean, I, now I'm going to end up like sounding like I'm right wing or something, but some of the cancel harassment stuff did actually like ruin people's existence. Well, it was enforcing sadism enforcing, too. It was right. its own it was, like, kind of game on, and it was its own, right. yeah, people enjoyed it. So it showed you the mechanic, like the Mia Project showed you the mechanic of that. Of course, not really, because we're only thinking about it now, like as external observers. If you were caught in that game, you maybe didn't know it was a game or you're close to it. Or yeah, I mean, it's only in retrospect that we can speak about it. Like, well, it, was, that way, probably. it was kind of this aggregation of all of these different exploits yeah. and, and codes that are valuable across the political landscape yeah. of Twitter. I mean, I understand the Mia project and think it's interesting, but listening to Charlie talking on Contain, they kind of just danced around what, to me, are the only questions that actually matter when it comes to like passing an actual moral judgment on it, which is what was the role of publishing like essays full of scientific racism, like not even on Twitter, just yeah. elsewhere. And, and didn't people get hurt? Right. What about the minors with eating disorders who are carving their names into their skin? Did that really happen, first of all? And second of all, like, why was that not addressed? And so I just come away wondering, like, was Charlie a very intelligent psychopath or was this trolling that just went too far? But I mean, I think complicating this too is if you go on a pro-Anna board, people find identity through this harmful behavior. Like if you're like really taking out morality, you can say he was giving people what they desired. That was, that well, was if like, it was a right? kink or something like right, so BDSM or something. Yeah. But most people who go in, they're all like in the game together on the same level. And Charlie would be entering into the space in a predatory way, getting off. Well, also, as a young control. trans woman, which she right, is not. But yeah. Right. I mean, I just wonder if either of you actually know, like, was there actual harm there? And is there a bit of a disingenuous framing to just look at this through purely as edgy, hardcore media, social media experiment? I do believe that there was harm done to some people. I don't know how much of like the narrative around it, the formal like cult structure of it was true. And I also can't speak to how much was something that the people behind these accounts were looking to do. People that would come in and join this like alternate world where they would be submitting to like this persona of Mia because like the persona of Mia was cyber hypertoxicity. So it was like an aesthetic for Mia 
to have a trap harem on Discord, for instance, like stuff like that. But it's weird because, you know, how much of that can like even remain like artifice? Yeah. Because there are people that go online and they don't know what they want and they don't know what they need, but they are looking for something from someone. So I do feel like there was negligence to people that entered the community, especially like the younger people. There are plenty of instances where someone should have taken a step back and been like, this isn't right. But then you also have all of that narrative was like part of the like Mia self-destruction at Mm. 10K sort of like story. I do believe that it did not happen. Like I think we can lay some blame on them for causing harm to people, you know. Framing it in terms of negligence is actually really useful. So it's not saying that like the action is the thing. It's the like failure to pull back when you realize that you're actually harming somebody. Yeah, but I I don't see any other way out of this time than calling into question the acceptance of the social media spaces, totally interoperable and compatible. But that's why I think the incoherency that's native to like sewer slot, like you listen to that music and there's all this dissonance and like it's somehow also really beautiful and like really listenable or like how classic fried memes are like more valuable than like like really professionally done memes. Maybe there's a new way that we're operating in this space to create layers of opacity within it or to create friction within it. To right, create, I think it's like, putting distance again. Right, exactly. This, but, this is actually what I'm saying, like this sort of incoherency of communication and showing that this divide is being opened back up again or uh, people are trying to open it back up again. I don't think it's and, about li- real life and digital life though. I think it's just about mm, having privacy within these spaces or differentiation. I would think it is about trying to make a distance between the two spaces. Well, what do I and guess the last, the last thing I want to say about it, and then I won't bring it up anymore since you're hating on me, <laughs> is that reality is calibrated to things like preserving life and preventing suffering. Yeah. And the entire Web2 social media is calibrated to maximizing attention. And it's like absolutely asinine to suggest those two realms are compatible. They're tuned to entirely different ends. That's true. And so, you know, like, for instance, like, Urbit, like, its biggest flaw is actually its biggest conceptual strength, which is that they designed it totally from the bottom up because they know the physics of code affects everything that emerges all the way up, right? right? It seems to be an attempt to put a gulf between the digital network space and reality. Uh-huh. Uh, there's something interesting about like, this is my identity. This is going to be the same for everybody. I don't even think that that is even in IRL reality. Like I'm a pretty different person to like my aunts versus like my friends online versus like my old friends from college. I take on different roles and become sort of a different person to all these people's different eyes. And that's like actually more aligned with reality. Mm. And there's something about like when digital spaces, or at least like peak web to force this singular identity, that's just like, doesn't even feel very real or it's definitely boring. And so to me, it, yeah, it makes sense that some new thing will be pushing up against that yeah. where you could don a Milady PFP and then you don't even really have like an individual identity at that point, you're kind of like a part of this swarm and you take on this sort of stylistic network. Yeah. You become a node in that, this reflection of it. It's like, it's something really interesting. I see why it's compelling as a reaction to like what we've been forced into by the platforms. Although ironically, code-wise, it is a totally unique, cryptographically secure single identity in terms of the NFT PFP. But it's somehow separated from your like on-the-street identity. I mean, I think Sam Frank was saying this on the Red Square pod. Shouts out Sam Frank. Sam Frank's great. He's like, yeah, individuality, the neoliberal individual is like, not that's like we're not individuated. We are in the age of the collective. The most like powerful thing of crypto just showed that a digital network can collectively manifest just through consensus belief trillions of real dollars, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, $2 trillion. Mm. Like that's a pretty big flex to prove its power. Totally. Right? Yeah. So Totally. One of the traits of like this general like sphere online, it's a lot of people who are IRL, they're just a guy and then online they are a cute girl and they're not trans because in real life they aren't presenting as a woman it's literally like they go online to be this person which i think is like cool and i think that that is like one of the things that was 
lost when we got to like web two and and very much like with miladies too the way that they talk people like take on the milady persona i also think it's worth mentioning like the yeah the phenomenon of anonymous software engineers having meetings with vcs where they're using voice modulators and getting funding i don't think that has ever happened before I am pretty sure that is a new Web3 specific phenomenon. What's the instance, Dan? There's multiple instances of this. The Yuga Labs founders were were not doxxed. They've recently doxxed the CEO, which is some woman. And I think it's... Fake CEO. I don't think that's really who is behind it originally, probably. Mm. But a lot of DeFi protocols, etc. have anonymous founders. I mean, I am sure that there's been, like in Web1 period anonymous people doing things on the internet, obviously, but the validation of that by by finance and in general, mm-hmm. that's that is new. And also very post real name policy, very, very much a shift from that. I don't imagine that happening during Facebook era at all. Yeah. Okay. So maybe this is actually a moment to talk about the aesthetics of Miladies and why the young girl, Jeune Fille, why that archetype has such traction in digital spaces. And it's something that we can trace back to like Fritz Lang and Metropolis was written by a woman, Taya Van Harbo, and Maria's likeness being given to the robot. And you know, you can go back even further. There's this archetype of the women in technology being a very potent avatar. But it's not just the young girl. If we look at the aesthetics of it, if we look at, I mean, I love Honor Levy's TikTok. I think one of the things that she does, she's part of Wet Brain, if anyone doesn't know. And she also, I think, does social media for Orbit or is involved somehow in that. Maybe David can tell us more about the Orbit connection to the sphere in a bit. But she does these TikToks, which are like, borderline incoherent and yet so information rich. It's like, I wish, I was saying to Julian yesterday, I wish that you could say dog whistling without it having right-wing connotations. I think you should I think make maybe that just happen. make that happen, yeah. Because it's like, really useful. There's a way that something is said without being said, or there's a way that like certain aesthetics are going to be legible to people who are like part of a community sharing a language. It's kind of like a dialect. It's not the word, it's more the tone or the disposition of it. And her TikToks are just brilliant at that, non-right-wing dog whistling to a certain conversation. And they're also really funny and intuitive and like they somehow say everything without didactically saying anything. So it's kind of the mix of young girl and all that that brings with it and also this incoherency. I don't know, like... Just an analogy. I, I mean, I think of it as evolving hand in hand with like the fried aesthetic, like the, the fried meme. Yeah. And it's kind of like fried, it's mean, like also, fried language. Yeah. yeah. Or like, yeah. Yeah. There's like information. Uh, I think people way. are looking for how to do that with words themselves. You can now. never karaoke a witch house song, <laughs> you know, like it doesn't, but yeah, I mean, I know there's a whole tycoon discourse and I know Paige Bradley posted something in our discord about a critique of that, which is also interesting. I mean, there's reams of books that have been written about the young girl as a figure. It's not something new, but I just wonder how that tracks for you and why you think maybe this has become the default character. Yeah, it is like a huge question for me because, well, I'm transgender, so I'm like always like hyper aware of like the way that people like change their presentation, especially with regard to that stuff. And it does seem like for a lot of people, there is like an element of it that has to do with the way that our culture has come to see masculinity in the past, maybe like 10, 15 years like when we have liberal feminism like on really mainstream i wonder if on some level some people like find that to be more of a blank slate but it's weird because it's not of course but then you also have like this very chan obsession with moe like young girl like anime yatsuba is the like logo of 4chan that was always the persona but there is this like trans feminine force that comes hand in hand with the internet Partially because a lot of people who are trans, they spend a lot of time online because they don't have to deal with like these same issues of presentation not aligning with like what they want to present. It's all very complicated. It's one of the like most fascinating like things yeah. about Kaliak and Mia. And it's similar with 
the Miladies. They're all, they're cute. They're all neotenous and cute. Yeah. I mean, there's this feeling that Mia hit yeah. 10,000 followers and exploded into 10,000 PFPs. Yeah, that's with true. With Miladies. Yeah, definitely. And of course, with cuteness, there's usually a kind of danger or a kind of violence. And there's the heightened excitement of there being a young girl in this dangerous online space. And there's like a dialectical thing between the internet and cuteness, um, like super vulnerability. And then there are these masculine identities. There's the whole like sunning your balls type straight line type dominance thing that's happening simultaneous with this, which is a very performative male brute cis maxing or whatever Josh is calling it. Yeah. So it's interesting the way that gender is coming back in. It's uh, definitely something that I think we'll continue to like cogitate on over the coming seasons. That is for sure. I mean, you know, all like gender signifiers get like hypertrophied like online yeah. because of the way people's brains work very instinctually, like hyper aware of that stuff. And then also another big thing with Mia and Milady is it's meant to be a like startling contrast between what they say and what they look like. Mm. So like with the Milady's, this irony is coming out of a cute cute face, a cute anime girl face, right. which has always kind of been the thing. It's always kind of been the like 4chan thing. David, I saw you on Justin Murphy with uh, Soph. I, I was <laughs> yeah, like yeah, really yeah. trying to do yeah, my yeah, homework yeah. before yeah, this. It's fine. Okay. So I saw you on a podcast. You were talking with someone else who was involved or is, I'm not sure, with the Romelia Corp, Sophie or Soph. And she referred to herself as a girl in residence at Urbicon. That was her business card, a girl yeah. in residence. Yeah, I have yeah, to say, yeah. I was like so irritated. But as I started to reflect why on- Why were you annoyed? Because, I mean, it's the same reason why when I listen to Dasha and Anna, who I think are really smart women, and when I hear Dasha say D-A-L, I'm like, you know what a fucking DAO is. I know you know that, but you're playing up this idea <laughs> that you're like, don't know it. And like, okay, that's a persona and I respect the theater. So it's fine. But I just get frustrated when I think about how, I mean, we have very, I'm going on a tangent, like, you know, Dan and Julian, progressive guys, but even I find that there are certain gender biases that are inscribed even in our working relationships, which is just the way it is for all female presenting people in this world. That's just what happens. Really, Carly? What? Why don't you tell us? Why don't you just put it all out there right now? Let's talk about it. Let's chop it up. Let's figure out. Let's get to the bottom of it. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, we can can do a whole special feature on that, and I will invite a lot of of my female friends to come and talk about it. All right. I'll invite the boys. We'll go face to face. Yeah, let's go face to face. Throw down. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, And so I'm like, why are you making it more difficult for all of us just so that you can have your little performance edgelord thing? Like, you're just Reinscribing this bias that like women don't understand tech. But then now that I think about girl in residence in the context that we just spoke about, girl as this incredibly powerful sigil in the online space, it takes on another valence. It's kind of interesting. And I don't know if she meant it that way or not, or if Urban means it that way or not. But like it is interesting when you start to then place real bodies with some of these signs. So I know there are probably many girls in residence. I don't know exactly what Urban thinks of when they think of that term, but they've been recently throwing a lot of parties. They've had a real on-the-ground social presence. And there was this... There were milady raves, too. There were milady like, raves, right? They were, like, rivaling the FWB parties. You know, there's, like, the star power of Azealia Banks and, like, Cara Delevingne. Does that, like, rival the milady? You know, I don't know. There's a whole thing that's happening here in IRL space. Like, with a co-founder who's very intent on revealing all of the toxic activity behind miladies to have book Azealia Banks at your party is a little bit hypocritical. No kidding, it's really funny. Anyways. Yeah, but so last week there was like orbit parties in New York. Also the fact that this reveal that Charlotte was Mia timed exactly when there were going to be all these people in IRL space together. Perfect time to drop a gossip bomb. Could only help ladies in the long term. Also Balenciaga did a show in the New York Stock Exchange Everyone's wearing these gimp suits. All the faces are, there's no PFP. They're just blank faces. And the only faces that were visible were the guests. So I don't know. There's this confluence of stuff that's happening. David is in the middle of all of it. (laughs) There's also this gallery, Alyssa Davis Gallery, that put together a gala that David performed in. People are writing all these. There's like a million texts that are being released on Dime Square and the Urbit parties. And, you know, it's literally making the pages (sighs) of Vanity Fair. (laughs) Dan. (laughs) No, this could confirms my suspicion that, you know, downtown New York is just an attention singularity. I'm just imagining anybody writing about a tea party that happened literally like 
a mile away in any direction <laughs> from downtown New York just would never have happened. It's a little bit ridiculous, but yeah, case in point for why we're going to open up a channel office in downtown New York and hopefully people will write about the dumb and name things that happen inside that office. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> no, no, I think that's I think that's a pretty good segue. There's a bunch of things I could say, but the one that just is jumping out right now at the end of Urbit Week, I somehow like after the no agency party, which I'm wearing the, the hat kind of fake exclusive hip downtown modeling agency. And they somehow are partnered with Urbit because Urbit, I, I guess Galen is just like in it and he's trying to like somehow tapped in, like he invited Honor and, and Walt to assembly. Galen's the CEO. CEO of Twan. CEO of Twan, 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 Twan right. which creates Urbit. It's like the, the corporation that develops on top the of protocol. it, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, many things I could say, but like after the new agency party, I found myself at an after party that was at the same location as where the Wet Brain Tea Party was at. This beautiful five-story uh, loft in Soho where like you walk in and there's like a tank. You see like the bottom, like a pool up one floor. There's an indoor <laughs> pool up another floor is like this beautiful giant space with like $100,000 sound system and then like outdoor blah, 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 blah. Who owns this building? Oh, it's a very good question. Partially also where it ties in. It's owned by the family of someone I don't want to fully dox, but a higher up in Romelia. Wow. And it's a former power station, right? I see. (laughs) Uh, That changes my whole understanding of Romelia and also maybe answers the previous question about how did they mint out in March? Yeah, not not sure. But this person I'm talking about, it's like a younger person, but they're like a known entity in this space. But yeah, their family owns this thing. I hear it's Texas Chainsaw Massacre money. I'm oh, not wow. really sure about that. It might be a rumor. Texas Chainsaw Massacre money? Like the film? Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess like, it's a franchise. I guess it, yeah. yeah. That's a yeah, good lore. Like their family of producers, maybe, something like that. That's good that lore. Yeah, good it's lore. pretty good lore. But like, it was like half Balenciaga people, half people from No Agency Party. Like all at the Romelia Co. Badass Soho loft where there's a pool inside and like $100,000 sound system. Wow. So it's like all these things in real life it's very, it's literally like 0.3 degrees of separation once you're like on the ground. And I wonder like Urbit clearly is like making a concerted effort to do that. I mean, I think the only reason I went to assembly is because I, I live there. Say what assembly is. Uh, It's like the conference, like the first time that Urbit had anything where they brought people together. Mm. It was a really cool collection of people. It was in October in Austin, but then also they just randomly invited wet brain Walter Pierce, Honor Levy. I did hear from a wide variety of people that the vibes were extremely positive and everybody was really happy about it. Yeah. And it wasn't a super spreader event like a lot of other events. Yeah. There was a big outdoor space. I feel like I mostly just chilled on the grass and there was like an open bar. Assembly was really fun. So like Romelia like sent Soph and another anonymous e-girl within (laughs) this sphere. And literally their role was to just be like teenage hot girls, just like lounging in the grass. It was like very funny and had their business cards for Romelia Corporation. And so said like girl in residence. It, it definitely had an effect on the vibe, but the vibe was like very positive. Like I'm bullish on Urbit literally just because, I mean, it feels like hyperbolic, but it shifted the direction of my life in the last nine months. I made friends there in a way that was very rare. And uh, I've been to a bunch of tech conferences and they all suck. Part of that is that like everyone's trying to like get something out of each other. And like that wasn't the vibe at all. So this was the second time that they've done like a big event. It was this Urbit Week in New York. It was cool. It was different. All the events would be like half nerds and half New York City, like art world, like downtown scene people. How big were the parties? Like how many people? I'm trying to guess into the scale of scene. Yeah, I feel like so there was a Mars review of books party in like the Peter Thiel loft that it was like pretty packed. I would say like a couple hundred people. Like it felt like Astro World kind but of Astro World had like what, 30,000 people? 100,000 yeah, people? Yeah, yeah, much but smaller like what, space, Yeah, but. exactly. Like square, person per <laughs> yeah. like square foot. Yeah, but this, is, but this is kind of what I'm wondering, right? Yeah. I mean, Mia happened to overlap with social graphs that reached us, mm. right? Miladies also that social graph overlapped with ones that reach us. And I just wonder, ultimately, in our world, this feels like a wave, a new thing, a new energy going on, and there's press talking about it and stuff. But, I mean, is this scalable? Does it need to be scalable? I mean, again, like think like Andy Warhol. The scene itself doesn't need to be scalable. Uh If the vibe travels, that's what counts. That's a good point. 
In fact, it kind of kills it if the scene itself becomes mass. Well, then the you're scene bored can't eggs. because it has to be exclusive. Yeah, in part, right? right. There was a secondary market for the no agency caps where like... Yeah, I heard about that. You could only go to Cafe Forgot to buy the cap. Like you had to go to the IRL space and it was like 50 bucks and you had to wear the cap to enter the party. Am I right? This is I'm just gaining this from like lurking around on social media. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think like 90% of the people like were guest listed and mailed the hat and then they had like 10 oh, okay. or something got like that it. that were available got for it, purchase. Like this like scramble and then people are buying them on Grailed apparently. This one's a real one, but I know some people that made very convincing fakes. No one's keeping the sticker <laughs> on it, like the way you keep a sticker on like a, a, new, like era a new era in two thousand two. Yeah, I should have kept it on. I took it off. I mean, you've just been there a few weeks. So your first impression of New York has just been carried by this like incredible wave of like tech and fashion and like all this cool stuff. Do you have a sense of how it sits within the register of what came before it? Like think of like the older literary circles of like older, but like Caitlin Phillips and Sarah Nicole Prickett. And I don't know if these names mean anything to you, but like the sort of existing landscape yeah, yeah, of yeah. say Dime Square for better or worse. Are those scenes integrating or are they sitting like yeah. distinct from each other? It's weird. It's hard to see what is like real versus kind of like forced on. But I mean, even at the, like Mars Review of Books in that same space the day before Matthew Gazdick, like they did the Dime Square play oh, like really? for other people, which has been like sold out since the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then like also like Matthew, the guy that wrote that play and then was his name Christian Lawrenson, the critic. Both of them have essays in the Mars Review of Books, which is like Urbit magazine, yeah. which is there's been like two Urbit magazine launches during Urbit Week. You know, they're like writing essays about PMC and then Christian like had an uh, essay about like, for some reason, like the Bath huh. book and then like Logo Daedalus's book, what? Wow. <laughs> like in, in this like sort of essentially right-wing magazine. <laughs> and um, the Alyssa Davis Gala, I mean, that also was like a mixing of worlds a bit, like artists who sort of preceded this orbit wave and also people who are maybe more tuned into it. Do you want to say a bit about the gala or like what its framework was? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the stars yeah. were there. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. It was like literally a thousand people. Like if you didn't skip the line like I did, it was like two hour line if you got wow. there at the wrong time. A thousand people in this like giant space in, in Bushwick. It was really fun. Outdoors was like a series of performances. Indoors was like dance party with like pretty big names. And then like Rash did the DJ cool. thing. I got snuck into VIP by a 22-year-old art dealer from Hong Kong. <laughs> what was the benefit? What, or was it not a benefit? Was it just like for the artist? It was a benefit, yeah. I mean, Alyssa's gallery got like shut down. Oh. Yeah, like I think she was just was like running it out of her apartment in the West Village. And yeah, I think her building like sent in a private investigator and like infiltrated, like gathered all this evidence and shut down her gallery, essentially for her to get a new, like a, a new gallery. Sounds like she single-handedly, well, plus all the artists brought back the art world <laughs> this past week. It sounded like... Yeah, I can't believe they pulled it yeah. off. Yeah, it's, it's really impressive. Yeah, like it felt like people wanted to be there. Not like people showed up to X benefit because they felt like it was the right thing to do, but because it felt exciting and were legitimately interested to see what was going to happen as opposed to like obligation type art yeah. world events. So that's really cool. Yeah, 100% agree. And it's like most of all the galleries of you note, know, like in the Lower East Side and stuff, were all like kind of partners in it. Uh, it was really fun. They, uh, like, if you got a gold VIP thing, you got underwear that Nick Cosmos wore. God. <laughs> Dan. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a lot of the think pieces coming off of the Dime Square think piece assembly line recently, like they're really looking at Urbit and the current downtown New York scene and the milady scene through this sort of framework that's very 2020 of like, you're either left wing or you're right wing. Mm. Those are like two like teams. They're like, it's like football in Europe where there's like hooligans on each side who like fight each other and like there's no mixing together of people, right? So a lot of times they talk about this scene as being the quote unquote like new right. But I have a feeling that it's more just people abandoning that polar framework, yeah. that very web two to like gamified political MMORPG Twitter framework and allowing for a pluralistic space or a heterodox place of heterodox, space. Yeah. yeah, heterodox space. Is that the vibe you're yeah, getting? That definitely. it really is more of an abandonment? Yeah. I mean, I think that the vibe is that it's cringe to think in that way, right? The vibe on the ground that I see is that like, 
looking at it in that with, with those polarities is like kind of missing it. And then like, at least the attempt is to have some developmental transcendence that like still can hold the reality of those things, but without collapsing into this polarity that doesn't really seem to apply anymore, especially as like people recognize like what that does in material reality. It's just not calibrated yeah. to what actually matters. Yeah, exactly. And and Holly, do you think even online that there's a shift towards, I don't know, a more pluralist disposition? A more like, say, what are the stakes or, then? Yeah, it's, it's a lot. Like, I, I spend a lot of time, a lot more time than I used to, talking to people who are identify as right-wing, whereas before that, that's kind of inconceivable. And then it's weird because you start to see these other like polarities creep in. Like there will always be some differentiating factor that will creep in. So like there was like a big thing for a while with people that were like pro and anti Web3. Right. So there's always going to randomly be these little weird differentiations. And then you've got like the Catholicism thing too. It's like people will find new ways to have fights. But in general, there is like a re-territorialization, I guess, a little bit. And I think that has been really healthy I think that's one of the biggest like major positive developments. Maybe people are willing to listen to other people and attribute good faith to them more, huh. but not always. It doesn't it doesn't always work out that way and but we'll see. Yeah. We'll see where it goes. If people are fighting over being Jesus pilled and agree on like healthcare and like not going extinct like that's a good <laughs> so, development yeah probably a good development so pr- appropriate yeah. recalibration there's still like at like the urban week parties there's still like a clear divide between new york city downtown cool kids and like the urban like nerd nerds <laughs> you know <laughs> it's pretty obvious but it's not i don't think it's political it's more like aesthetic well it is maybe a little bit political <laughs> it's more just aesthetic and who knows how to party and you know yeah. i don't know there's like it's like kind of overlapping different worlds it's like funny to see them together. <laughs> Keep those urban kids in downtown New York for long enough and you'll probably have some kind of intermingling that is... <laughs> everything, it does feel like everything is starting to follow the like anime con model now where it's like you build these communities online and then they manifest around a particular event IRL yeah, uh, like yeah. a couple times a year. Yeah, totally. Um, which is cool. Anime cons are great. Yeah. Um, Meanwhile, Dan, um, are you hanging on to your miladies? Do you have any miladies? Uh... <laughs> I'm still holding some bags, unfortunately. I, I did sell off a lot of them over the last month or two, and I oh, still have uh, Dan's secret lady whale. <laughs> well, I I did mint 15 of them in August uh, in one go. But anyway, yeah, so I've made my money back at least. But I did not profit as much as I, I guess I could have. Oh, well. I, I, I've never really identified with them. I don't have a Milady PFP. I do think it's okay to separate the art from the artist, especially when the art is a multi-user social phenomenon like this. It's, <laughs> it seems even easier, but we'll see where, where it goes. Well, you got compensatory damages for your emotional harm from the Treblinka shirts. Sounds like. <laughs> well, yes, exactly. I, I certainly got my compensation for that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I do think that like, you know, Ryder, I don't know why he's doing this, but I actually don't think he's as wrong about some of the things that he's been accusing as like Luke was, for instance, like that's the right. signs are simple are, are realer. And obviously the stakes are higher because there's just so much more money involved, especially with board apes. Like that's an actual yeah. thing that's worth criticizing, I guess on like me, <laughs> which is not a real cultural phenomenon <laughs> worth criticizing. That is the big difference. Anyway. Well, I don't think the social web is going away anytime soon. And I am interested to see like what post Milady's type projects or what Milady's turns into from here. And regardless, it's still clear that like even though there's been a fall of Kali accelerationism and the cancellation of its leader, et cetera, I mean it's pretty obvious when Yuga Labs and Milady's are the two NFT projects, everyone talks about that. The Kali Yuga is still here. Kali is still ascendant uh-huh. and is going to be playing an increasing role the rest of our lives. <laughs> <laughs> uh, any shout outs or any last words? Holly, are you writing more? I hope you are. I I hope to. I hope to soon. Yeah. That's, we'll see. Okay. And if people, do you want to say your handles? Sure. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at holy cow, but it, four wise, holy four wise cow. Have you already found the the next thing online? Um, I don't know. I'm, I've been asked a few times what I think is the next <laughs> big thing, and I don't really know. This whole like 
thing with the ladies has been incredibly drawn out, but who knows? There's a lot going on. There's so much going yeah. on. And I'm just, I don't even know what's going on in real life. When David tells me all this stuff, I'm just like, whoa, I'm just on the computer. So I got no idea. <laughs> with all this going on, I got no idea. I'm, I don't have the perspective I thought. So yeah. <laughs> and David? Oh uh, yeah. I don't know. I mean, you can follow me on Instagram if you want. Anybody listening to this should know. Yeah. Uh, but it's like, yeah, just David E with some underscores. Yeah. If you want to see like the pool inside the Romelia mansion, then you're welcome to follow me. I'll be back. I'm friends with that guy now. He's cool. He's not cool, actually. <laughs> the David David Wise Society pages. David yeah. Wise Society pages. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you both for joining us. And really appreciate this total mapping of, of this insane internet space that we're in. And curious to see where things go from here. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Oh, also, sh- shout out. We mentioned it before, but uh, Charlie on Contain, I think, was like... It's pretty interesting. It's hard to know for sure with that guy, but it's kind of an interesting angle. Although he did skirt the abuse allegations. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. primary resource, if you want to hear it from the source, totally. Yeah, it's interesting. Shouts out Barrett. Barrett's a good guy. It's an interesting case study. Cool. <laughs> yes. Cool. All thank right, you all. Thank you all. Okay. Have a good Thanks, rest Bye. of your weekend. Yeah, you too. Thank you for listening to New Models and thank you, Holly and Davidi, for joining us. There's a lot we could have done with this episode, amplifying the moral stakes around what ultimately were statements of hate and acts of harm, applying a contagion model to miladies and admonishing all those with any proximity as complicit in speculative future violence. But the story itself had enough performance and more than enough speculation already and nothing would be learned from us adding more. Besides, we all know what's actually real and what isn't, right? If you're in the US, you can sign up for a content-only New Models subscription at newmodels.substack.com. Worldwide and for Discord access, we're at patreon.com slash newmodels. If you sold your miladies or dumped your ApeCoin bags, consider subscribing to us via Web3, more at channel.xyz. Pump us in the algos with fresh engagement. And as always, see you next episode. This has been a New Models production. Mixing and New Models themed by Low Internet. Music in this episode included Rachi Nikado, Serial Experiments Lane Bootleg, and Sua Slut. For more, visit our homepage at newmodels.io.